I didn't, I didn't check the, uh, I didn't check the cat, the, the uh, cafeteria to see how we were doing in there. But it, it, about that was about six minutes, so we're okay. If you are within the sound of my voice and you are still enjoying refreshments, we be refreshed and come on inside and uh, come on back in. Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians. While you're doing that, would you please help me say thank you to all of our volunteers and our worship team and our people? All right. We got some good ground to cover today, really good stuff. So as we do, let's take take a look here. We're going to begin reading in chapter 5 and verse 22. And if if you're just jumping in with us or you're newer or you weren't even here last week, you just need to know that we're that verse 22 is jumping in kind of mid-topic. So we'll back up and hear it in just a second and make sure we connect uh, the text with the topic. Here we go. We're going to read 22 all the way through 6-9. Here we go. Uh, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wife ought to be uh, to their own husbands and everything. Husbands... Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his own wife loves himself, and no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment that comes with a promise, so that it might be well with you, so that you might live long in the land. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, serving with goodwill. Somebody said goodwill. Goodwill as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same thing to them, giving up, threatening, knowing that uh, their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. (laughs) In Christ, we honor the Lord with our primary or in our primary relationships. This passage, verse 22 is begins an application that's a clicker right there in our in christ we be about there we go okay uh, uh verse 22 is an application or begins the application or example portion that started in verse 21 verse 21 says 
that we are, see, it, verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of fear of Christ. To submit to one another means that we show preference for one another's needs above our own. It means to submit or to show deference or to, pro, to show preference for the needs of others above our own. It does not mean that we are subordinate or subjugated to other people. It is an act of our will unto the Lord. And it is a part of or, a, or it is part of and a, and a product of spirit-influenced living. Verse 21, be sub, being subject to one another is directly connected to be filled with the Spirit. So the, the, the flow here is be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another. And now what that looks like is here is what Spirit-influenced people, Spirit-filled people, here's how that expresses itself in how we honor one another in our primary relationships. We live this way, what we just read, we live this way because it is the obligation of our faith to do so, but it is also the operation of the Spirit to do so. Now, reading this text, 22 through 6, 9 there, it might be, uh, tempting or easy for us to read that and kind of assume some things. For instance, and it's it's natural, so don't nobody nobody needs to feel upset about it. But um, when we read these kinds of texts, we often bring with us. Well, we bring our own minds with us, and we bring kind of our own set of assumptions with us, or our, or a template with us, but. And what we need to remember is this letter is not being written to a group of people who have grown up in or around a Judeo-Christian ethic. Because of Christ, because of the church, because the expansion of the church and civilization, around the world there is at least, there's at least an influence there's at least the flavor, the awareness of a broader Judeo-Christian ethic that, that it's, I'm not saying it, it's, it's rightly applied everywhere or that it's saturated everywhere, but it's certainly, there's certainly an awareness of it. And so texts like this don't even, don't really sound alarming. In fact, they sound a little bit familiar. And then sometimes we resent them because of how they have been weaponized. But we need to do is take a deep breath and think, wait a minute, this is being written to a largely Greco-Roman culture where the Christian ethic, there weren't any Puritans there yet. None of that happened yet. There was no Puritan ethic anywhere. This is being written to a carnal and harsh, secular is the kindest way to say it, Secular but, but largely carnal, pagan culture. And written to people who have come into Christ who are living in the midst of that cesspool. And instead of assuming that 
everybody, this is written, we should not, in other words, we should not assume that anybody reading this letter, that their frame of reference is leave it to beaver. Again, I've just missed three quarters of the room, huh? I'll tell you, back in the day, they used to make programs where families got along. Yeah, all the things, all the things. So here's the thing. This is written to a, a culture that probably, in other words, the households weren't holy. They probably didn't have any peace. They probably weren't really great places. The households were probably governed by a dominant, domineering, aggressive, uncaring uh, male who probably thought he should be king with no reason to think otherwise. Probably uh, 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 women, if there was only one or whatever, as far as spouses, uh, would have been put. Would have would have had to would have had to hustle just to survive. They probably had. There probably would probably was very very little um, across the board. Anyway, I'm not saying there weren't ex expressions of goodness, but across the board, probably uh, uh, wives scurried, resented had side hustles, did whatever they could just to get by. Children were exploited and abused. And every household, that there were different levels of servanthood, servitude in that culture. By the way, the Bible, the only time the Bible really references the slave trade, like the inhuman slave trade, it, uh, it, associates, it associates it with immorality, idolatry, and murder. But those who are hearing this, the, those who are listening to this would have been a little bit different than, than the horror. I'm not saying it was wonderful, but those who are hearing this would be members of a household who would have been coming to church with them. That's why Paul wouldn't be writing to people who couldn't hear him. So these are people who would have been at least at least part of the household that not biological members probably or at least not directly but they were part of the household and they probably lived in such a way yeah they were probably servitudal they were subordinate they they probably either didn't have a trade or had or at some point in their life came into a situation where the, all they could trade was themselves and the only way that they could live vocationally was to live uh, as a servant for a household. And that was the trade-off. It wasn't ideal, but it was where they kind of had found themselves, but they were still in the house. And if they were in the house that had come to Christ, then they would have come to the, the congregation. But Paul is not writing to people who know this stuff already or for whom it is old news. He is writing to people who do not know yet how to live spirit-directed lives in a crazy, carnal, oppressive culture. So what he tells them, what he's telling them is this. He says, you're, go you're going to step into and live in such a way you are going to displace carnal culture, the cult culturally accepted ways of living, and you're going to displace them with high and holy practices. It's going to revolutionize everything. What does it look like? What does he say to do? Well, he begins with marriage. And he begins by talking to wives. One more quick time out, just for fun. I'm already running out of time, but since I am, might as well use it all up. <laughs> he begins by talking to wives. That would be weird. What, in, in, a, in a patristic culture, male-dominated, 
he begins the discussion. He's, he's going to he, he begins addressing the home by first addressing wives. That is an honorific thing for him to do. He is elevating, recognizing the place of the female. He says, wives, and your Bible says submit to your husbands or our Bible or be subject to. There's no verb there. It's just the verb is carries over from verse 21. So it just says, wives to your own husbands as unto the Lord. And then he compares that relationship, husband to wife and Christ to the church. This is fundamental to what Paul is doing. In verses 32 and 33, we see it again, that he tells us that the marriage relationship is supposed to reflect the reconciliation and restoration that has been accomplished with Christ and the church. That instead of the carnal ways, that now love and respect become the fundamental characteristics of the Christian home. This is a rejection of, this is a, uh, uh, yeah, it's a reparation, a rejection of the damage done in Genesis 3 when the Lord says, uh, we, we've heard the curse, he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Again, that's been weaponized as, some, as if it were prescriptive. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. And the, and the Hebrew is this, is that because of sin, because of the fall, the first friction is going to happen between the image bearers. He says, your desire will be for your husband, he shall rule over you, means you too are about to enter into a multi-generational tug of war for honor and dominance. But in Christ, that struggle is overcome through intentional, voluntary honor. We don't overcome it by winning a fight but by submitting our rights to one another. Wow. As unto the Lord. Say that out loud. As unto the Lord. You know, he doesn't tell them that they are subjugated, that they're a bunch of less thans, but he encourages wives to see their calling uh, as to, to, to show respect for their husband as showing respect for Christ himself. This is dignified and this is honorable. And then to husbands, he only gives a couple of, couple of sentences to the wives, and then he has a lot to say to husbands. But here's the thrust of it. Love your wives. Someone say that out loud. He doesn't say just feel love or just say it. Well, I told her I loved her at the altar. She should remember. Doesn't just say feel it, doesn't just say, doesn't not, not just say it, but love them, demonstrate it, act how? How are men to love their wives? Just as. Say it out loud, just as. Yeah. Just as. This is a high thing, a holy thing. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a clickety clack. There is no way to read this and come away with a sense of superiority. No way I can read that and say, yeah, bring me a chicken pot pie and a Kool-Aid. <laughs> the only way to read that is this. Husbands, die for your wife. Love her in such a way that you are willing to die. Now, there's the caveat there in terms of roles and responsibility in the Christian household. 
because I'm the one who has to die, I'm the one who, who is going to have to sometimes go first. If the buck stops with me and I've got to die, then I've got to go first. That's leadership. Oh, I guess I've got to die first. Here I go. So a buck, this is a sense of, of, of the, the onus of responsibility does land on me. But I am to, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And notice what happens to the church when she is profoundly loved by Christ. How the church is washed and cleansed and she's beautiful and without spot or wrinkle. She's this glorious thing. And we can't miss this. Never underestimate how women are powerfully affected in large part by how they are loved by the most significant male relationship in their life. So men, love your wives. Not as ruler, not as master, not as boss, but as loving her unto your own death. And that might sound macho and easy and thumping your chest, but here's the real deal. But day to day, what that really means is loving her unto your own discomfort. When you are uncomfortable or don't prefer, you love her, you, you, you give up comfort and preference in order to love your wife. Take on the role of a suffering servant for the one that you love. This is spirit-supplied christ honoring marriage. Then Paul goes to parenting. Uh-huh. And he addresses fathers first. Again, a paternal side makes sense, but we could, we could put fathers or we could put mothers or we could put parents in there because in our culture, there's a whole nother, whole nother thing going on. But since he says fathers, I don't mind just talking to him. So fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. When Paul says, do not provoke them to anger, he does not mean never upset the little cherubs. But provoking them to anger means acting in, an, in a significantly unloving way toward them. Treating them as objects or whatever else. What kinds of things provoke our kids? Ex- one thing is excessive or arbitrary discipline. If it's excessive, if it's arbitrary, if it doesn't make sense, if it, if it I mean, in reality, I mean, I realize most of the time a kid will say, not fair, it doesn't make sense. You know what I mean. Engaging in humiliation or parenting by shame. Parenting by manipulation. Now, I, I guess I should say this, that um, uh, occasionally I engage in some parenting by ni- manipulation, but I make sure that they know I'm doing it. For, I mean, yeah, it, ma- it makes it okay if you acknowledge it. So if I'm sitting on the couch and I sigh heavily and I say, oh, I wish one of my kids loved me enough to get me a fresca... That's okay as long as you acknowledge it. (laughs) Heaven help me if it stops working. (laughs) Do not provoke them, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them. You know, if you're going to bring them, you also have to go. You also have to go. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction. Give them borders, give them boundaries, and then model for them and instruct for them what it means to follow Jesus and then lead them in following Jesus. And then he goes to what I will call vocational relationships. Again, it's not a direct analog, 
but for our our culture and our context, this is the closest analog we're going to have in this passage. We've already talked about the realities of what, you know, what was slaves and masters there. But again, the, we need to make sure we're, un, we're not understanding. He's not addressing the horrific slave trade of, that, of violence and inhuman behavior. He's talking about these household dynamics. And what he, and what he says to them to these people whose livelihoods depend on their conduct, service towards someone else, what he says to them is that instead of seeing themselves in this low estate and acting only with eye service as man pleasers, only doing only what is absolutely necessary while someone's looking and then trying to avoid, trying to avoid responsibility or, or whatever else. He, instead of, instead of um, accommodating what probably wasn't a pleasant experience, he calls them to see themselves in their real identities. That they are not defined by their status in culture, but rather they are defined as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then calls them to conduct themselves accordingly. He says, listen, you need to serve as if you are serving the king. In other words, put your shoulders back and your chest up and stand up and smile. And when someone's looking or not looking, you're serving the king. No matter how menial the task, you're serving the king. And do so with all of your heart, with goodwill, anticipating his reward. So he elevates. He says, now that you, in Christ, you have, something has happened to you that elevates you outside of whatever labels or, or confines that culture has placed you in. You are royal servants and have confidence that Jesus sees you. And that he will reward. Now, friends, if he can say that to them, then he, and mean it, and, then, and expect them to be able to live that way, then how much more would he say that to you and me in our vocational contexts? If we can, if we can, uh, we can view our vocational contexts as places where we are serving Christ, irrespective of our status or label or name tag or whatever else, that we would live in such a way as to honor Christ as royal servants, anticipating his reward. And then to masters, he actually just says this. Check this out. Do the same to them. In other words, have the exact same attitude. Hear this. Treat them as unto the Lord. This might sound super awkward, but how would you treat Jesus if he worked for you? They go, whoa. Treating them as unto the Lord, with goodwill as unto the Lord. This, is, this, is, this would have been incredibly shocking for that culture because Seneca, who was a Roman poet and moralist, said the famous quote of the day was, all slaves are enemies. In other words, and should be treated as such. But here, Paul calls for us to treat one another as unto the Lord. And then he says, giving up threatening, because we both have the same master. We have, we both, we give up, don't engage in that kind of stuff, because we all serve Christ. So here it is, this last statement that I think applies here and everywhere, there is no margin for abuse. 
either giving it or receiving it, not here, not in parenting, nor in marriage. Only that we exchange the culturally accepted patterns around us for high and holy practices of love and honor for one another. That is spirit-dependent living. As we close, just consider the significance of this passage, if you will. There is more attention given, particularly in the, the epistolary literature, these letters to churches. There is more attention given in the New Testament on the household than on the mission field. So as often as you and I feel, and we should, that sense of conviction and purpose and calling and high duty to make a difference with our witness, onward Christian soldiers, Go serve Jesus. Go where it is least. Go where it is lost. Go where it is dark. And we say, yes, I'll sacrifice. Yes, I'll do whatever. Jesus is worth it before to be a witness on the mission field. Listen, take that same willingness to serve and honor Jesus and live that way at home. It's worth it. Why should we? live this way in our primary relationships? What's the motive? I could and probably should mention the, the many reasons why these Christian obligations are helpful, why they are productive, why they are wholesome, why they're positive for everyone, how they lead to health and how they lead to peace and how they lead to wellness, how they lead to fairness, all of the really good practical theology reasons why we should do these things. And there's a lot of them. But Paul mentions none of them. Not to disregard them, but in comparison with the real why, they fade. So the only reason that Paul gives us to do all of this is for the Lord. As unto the Lord, with our only expectation, is His reward. Why should we live such spirit-directed, culture contrary lives of submitting to one another in preference for others' needs even to our own discomfort why should we live that way? because he is worthy you are worthy of it all we stand together. You are worthy of it all. From you are you are
Spirit of the Lord, fill us and use us that we would live spirit-directed lives honoring one another unto the Lord. This we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Somebody said amen. Amen. And listen, church starts in one minute. So listen, on your way to the cafe, go enjoy someone else's company. We'll see you all a little bit later.